friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I am your host, Annie F. Downs, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We have had a couple of really great weeks of podcasts. I've been super in love with how much you guys are digging these episodes with John Christ and with Rachel and Winston Cruz. And today, that fun will continue. For starters, the music in the background is our buddy Dave Barnes. His episode, y'all are loving as well. That was just a couple of weeks ago. His new album, Who Knew It Would Be So Hard To Be Myself, just released, and you should definitely grab it. I actually got a tweet from someone last week who said that they had downloaded the album and was loving it. And I was like, I get you. Me too. I know. So today on the show is one of my dearest friends, Joe Saxton. She is an incredible preacher, pastor, speaker, writer. Her new book, The Dream of You, just released, and I am in love with it. It's an incredibly, incredibly good book. I'll give you a heads up. Joe and I just did an event together a couple weekends ago, and before I went on stage to introduce her, she said, tell them I'm British. It'll help. It'll just get things started faster. So I'm giving you the heads up. Joe's British, and we spend a good amount of time talking about that British life and God and all sorts of beautiful things. I think you're going to love this conversation. So enjoy this conversation with Joe Saxton. I'm excited. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing good. Okay. So now that you're home, we just were together for the weekend. Now that you're home, what is a normal, like what's this week looked like? Oh, you went back to Texas again, didn't you? Or are you done? I'm done in Texas for a while. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Texas and I are done for a couple of weeks. That's right. Oh no, a couple of months. And that. So yeah. So you've just been home. I've been home. I am back to carpool. My youngest had a science fair. My oldest has volleyball. Um, bit of podcasting in between. Right. Steph. Just real life again. Yeah. Bills, groceries. Right. And cold weather. Silly cold. Oh, how cold is it? Um, I think we're reaching highs of 22 or 23 <gasps> today. Joe, you are kidding me. Yeah. It, right now it's eight. It's no. Eight. Okay. Let me tell you right now here, you're going to you're just going to hate this. Let me tell you what it is right here in Nashville. 71. Oh my gosh. How is that yeah, possible? Right. I do hate this. How are we that far off? I know. That's insane. Okay. Tell me you live in Minnesota. I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the Minneapolis area. So why are y'all up there? What's, why is that home? Well, we moved about six years ago and we moved initially to work for a church here. And so we did that for a couple of years, planted after that. And, um, and even with the changes church-wise, we, it, the kids were thriving here. And we, we actually just felt it was where we were needed to be as a family. So somehow the cold weather was one of the joyous benefits of living. Uh, when you say you moved to work at a church, was it you working at the church or your husband? Both of us. Both of us. Oh, okay. We were campus pastors at a church, yeah. Oh, God. Is that still what he does? No, actually. he <laughs> Not at all. No, he was an engineer before he was a pastor anyway. Okay. So he's gone back into the corporate world. Now, um, I, you know, it's the kind of job where I can't even describe what it is. So yeah, it's good though. <laughs> really? Yeah, totally. Do you like having him in the corporate world and out of the faith space? Or did you like y'all both being in it? Or is there pros and cons? What have you seen as the pros and cons? Pros and cons. There were pros, but it, the pros of us both working in the, in the faith space actually depended on the job. So when we were working at the church together, we actually had, we were at the same church. We didn't actually work together that often. And actually that was quite nice. Yeah. In terms of you're both kind of flourishing in the, in the ways that you're wired, because we're wired very differently anyway. Um, so the cons were the times when people assumed that because we were together, it was like two for the price of one. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that wasn't always ideal. Or whether they assumed certain things of our giftings because we were together. That wasn't always fun. What would that look like? Well, I'm 
really extroverted. He's he's rather introverted. Uh-huh. Um, he's more strategic and thinking in terms of financial and all of that stuff. I'm not at all. I'm, I am strategic, but not in the way that he is. And I think sometimes someone would come to one of us with a question that was actually for the other. And I'm like, I'm not even going to know how to actually articulate this question to my husband. So oh, I really do interesting. need you to talk to him. Okay. I, I, I need you to actually have that conversation with him because I'll be like, yeah, they said hi. That's all I heard. The whole two become one thing doesn't really play out when it's like getting questions answered about a job. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and I think in terms of the pro, I do love seeing him in um, the corporate world, partly because I, in many ways we moved to the States on a mission and it wasn't a mission for the church. <laughs> you know, it was engaging with the world around us. So it's just opened up new relationships. It's opened up wonderful opportunities and opportunities for connection. And it reminds me for us as believers, for those of us who would call ourselves believers, that that's the space where most of us inhabit most of the time. And what does it mean for us to look like that uh, and to live like that um, for the glory of God? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So tell me y'all moving, you said you moved to the States for that. So did y'all meet in the UK? Yeah, we met and we were in the same church. Um, Why did he live there? What is he? Is he American or is he Scottish or something? Oh, no, no, he's a Brit. Yeah, he's a Brit. He was born oh, in Scotland, grew up in I Liverpool. I forgot that. Mm-hmm. Oh, is he a big Liverpool fan? Oh. Is, he, is that his team or is it Everton? No, no, he's a Liverpool fan, lifelong. How? And I'm a glory hunter, so I just like who's oh, winning, which is yeah. Liverpool. A glor- right. I, you know what I was getting ready to do to you, Joe? I was about to ask you like nine questions about what he feels about Liverpool. And then I was like, no, that's literally doing to her what they did at church. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, no. If I want to talk Liverpool football with your husband, I need to just ask your husband how he feels about yeah. the new coach and how he feels about these new trades and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he does love um, Jürgen. He oh, does love him. I do too. He's a believer. Is he? Yeah. Did not know that information. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. That, that now has just made it all the sweeter for Chris, I'm sure. He right. will just be overjoyed. Okay, so y'all were, where were y'all living when you met? What part of the UK? We were living in Sheffield, which is bang in the middle of England. Well, yeah. if you look at the map, it's bang in the middle. And he, um, we were at the same church. I was the college pastor. He'd finished college. He's younger than I am. He's by five glorious years. Yep. And he'd, um, he'd just graduated and he was working and he decided to give God a year to say, do you want me to do something ministry-ish? So he was working part-time for Rolls-Royce, working part-time um, at the church. So he was doing the internship year and we met during that time, um, mainly on a mission trip when a good friend of mine asked me to put in a good word for her. With <gasps> him. Joe! <laughs> yeah, that happened. Yeah, it really did. And did yeah. you put in the good word and then went, ah, maybe didn't mean that. Maybe you I wish you would I talk did. to me. I was really good. I kind of had a strategy and a plan. And also because I liked somebody else at the time. So there was not, there was no skin for me in this game. Um, so, right. so I um, put in a very good word, a strong word. And then I got back and he asked me on a date. And I thought this, I'm clearly terrible at putting in good words for people. So what did you, did you have to tell her like, hey, quick thing? Uh... Yeah, I did. I did. Oh. I had to tell her. And I had to tell her quickly because I knew of other things that were being arranged for her and him to be in the same space. Oh, so, no. I know. And so I had to go to her workplace and she worked at a, um, a dental office. Um, she was working part time there. And I thought, you know what? Best thing. It's a Friday afternoon. Who's there? Well, let me tell you who's there. Half the church are getting their teeth right. done that day. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I had to write it on post-it notes because I couldn't, it was an open office and everybody would have heard. Yeah. Um, so I had to <laughs> had to write her message by message. I mean, it was terrible. It was yeah. terrible. Was she hurt? You know what? She was sad. Yeah, which is fair. Um, and she knew, and you know, we'd, we'd been roommates. We'd had a long and storied singleness life together. 
And so she was like, no, you've got to go on this day. You've got, and yeah. she was very clear because she said, if anything, if there's any more in it, I want to know more before it's public, which I thought yeah. was fair also. So, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't sure whether I was going to, I'd kind of agreed to go on the date because my mentor had said, promise me the next person who asks you, you'll go. So that was really <sighs> the, why I said yes. How old were you when this was all happening? 29, 28, 29. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was. It was a real one, but she was our wedding photographer. So yeah, it did work out wonderfully. Oh, it worked out fine. Yeah. Did you know, like on your first date, were you like, okay, here we go. Or were you like, this guy's nice. We'll see. I was like, uh, I felt quite uncomfortable because I thought, yeah, there could be something in this. Yeah. And I was, I was very self-conscious or thinking of my friend and thinking, oh, I was like, am I going to need to have another conversation? Yeah, I'm going to need to have another conversation. So it it was slightly weird because it wasn't like, oh, I'm really into this guy. It was like, oh, I can tell something's going to happen and I'm going to have to clean up some mess before we go any further. Yep, <laughs> yep. But the other option you had was not cleaning it up, which is never the right solution. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Right? No. It's yeah. devastating. In fact, my friend, she she got together with somebody months later and another mutual friend. I mean, it was a church with loads of young adults, so it kind of happened. Yeah. And um, the guy had a girl who was really into him and they were all friends. And so another another couple taking this even further said, we'll tell her. And they changed their minds at the last minute. They said, oh, <gasps> we're not going to tell I hope. No. <laughs> oh, that's brutal. I shouldn't laugh because, but it's terrible. And she was so devastated. Um, yeah. And they're like, oh, we just didn't know what to say. And I'm like, just, just deliver what you said you were going to do. Yeah, that's all you have to do. Just literally do what you said you would do. And that'll be good. And that'll be good. Oh, so, that's um, awful, Joe. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's awkward and it's vulnerable to say those things, but... I think you don't regret telling the truth on that when it Oh, um, man. I mean, I think that's the sentence there. You just don't regret telling the truth. I never regret telling the truth, even when it hurts yeah. other people or myself or whatever. You just don't regret telling the truth. It's always the right move. You've got to do it. You, you've got to do it. You're dealing with people's hearts, lives, choices. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? You've got to do it. You can't. Yeah. It's just not good. Um, I can't believe you and I have never talked about Sheffield because I, I'm going to blank on the name of the church. I am blanking on the name of the church. But when I lived in Edinburgh... There were tons of people from Sheffield from a like vibrant young church that used to come up to Edinburgh all the time. Would it have been your church? Yeah, probably. It was probably St. Thomas's. Yeah. And like there, it was a little bit like revivaly. Like there was a lot of yeah. big stuff going on down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Probably St. Thomas's because we used to do a lot. With Joe, how crazy is that? I mean, I think my friend Lisa is going to end up living there now from Edinburgh because we had so much back and forth. I mean, they would. I don't know how the friend groups knew each other. I think maybe through um, Joe Ewan, and he lives up north in Scotland. Do you know Joe Ewan, perchance? I do not, actually. I do not know. But I think it was the connection with him and that, like, church group, the Antioch kind of church group. Oh, yes. Would that have been with y'all? Um, now, I knew the guys at Antioch, but that wasn't part yeah, because, yeah, yeah. let's be clear, Sheffield has a 2% church attendance. You tend to know each other. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There aren't that many of us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think Americans need to hear. Will you talk more about that? Because Americans don't know. I did not know. So maybe Americans do. Annie didn't know. I did not know until I lived in the UK what it was like for 2% of the population to go to church. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's a completely, it's a completely different worldview. It's a completely different framework. And it changes your posture, you know. So in Sheffield, Sheffield was 2% would be found in church on a Sunday. The average, and and I'm talking, this was at, um, I don't think it's changed that much from 10 years ago. And the average size church was 30 people. And people are like thrilled when there's 30. Oh my gosh, because they're in the building. And these buildings would be huge because, you know, there are these, like Sheffield is built on seven hills. 
and it's a steel city historically, and it had um, a number of revivals in the, the Wesley era. So you see these little monuments in parts where Wesley once preached to 20,000 people. And, um, but, you know, you have two world wars. You have two world wars that wipe out entire um, villages from around the city. When I say wipe out entire villages, I mean where the men of those villages don't return home. I mean, the grief of a community, you have um, massive changes in terms of careers and the mines and stuff is shut down. All kinds of things affect the psyche of a community. And that would be true for much of the country. I, I mean, I think the stats are saying now that London is on the increase, but largely through immigrant communities like the Nigerian churches, which are explosively huge in London. So, um, yeah, it's a different dynamic. When I was in Edinburgh, that's what we talked about a lot was this like the World War II generation really stopped going to church in the UK. Yeah. And so now we're two to three generations past what we understand here in the US as low church attendance. Yeah. <laughs> you know, totally. like we're probably in a place where there where people are stopping going to church in general, but nothing compared to what I experienced. I mean like it was a literal sacrifice. It is a literal sacrifice to be a Christian in the UK and be open about it when it comes to business meetings and social gatherings. I mean, I, I would watch some of my really successful business friends talk really candidly about like, it is hard for me yeah, because no one else is a Christian. Totally. And it's, and it is a post Christian culture. So you go from people who are either antagonistic or just utterly confused why you're even thinking this, you know? And, and if you're a young adult, if you're in your twenties or something and you've made decisions, uh, you, that means you've made decisions about drinking, which is, England's water. Uh, do, you, do you know what I mean? And there are pubs right. on every corner. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. And sometimes too. And it's not that you don't go to the pubs necessarily because they're social environments. But you, when everybody says, let's get around and you're not having a beer uh, or you have one beer and everybody's like on their fifth or you've made decisions about sex, you've made decisions about money and time. I think it's made Christians in the UK when they are believers more explicit because you don't just say you go to church because that doesn't make sense. You actually have to say you believe in Jesus. I totally think that's true, too. That's what I expect. I mean, my friends over there were, like, brave about their faith. Yeah. Like, they just talked about it. There yeah. was no, like, let's, and, and you know me, I mean, I'm the one who's like, hey, let's, like, build a relationship, and let's talk about it, and let's have some time together, and you'll start seeing Jesus, da, 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 and they're like, no, we just tell them. We just tell them about Jesus because it made me give up my life. Yeah. It's incredible. It's a different framework. And I, and I think it was a huge culture shock coming here for us when we moved here. Yeah, because even, no, you can't move anywhere in the U.S. that is that, I don't think. Maybe Portland. Maybe, yeah, maybe Portland. But um, but where did y'all move when you came straight over? Initially Arizona. Okay. In Phoenix. And then we were in California for a while and then Minnesota. And I, it took a good few years to say, okay, this is what a Christian subculture looks like. And in the end, right. I stopped assuming people would believe. Uh, no, I, I changed my assumptions. And I thought, if you're going to tell me you're a Christian, I'm going to believe you. But I'm going to treat you like one, which means when you say there's a need, I'm going to pray with you there and then. I'm just going to pray with you right yeah. now. And if that's something that's alien to you, then we can work out what your faith means later. Because I, you know, even the Christmas and Easter only, people in England, people would be like, why would you bother though? Why would you go at Easter? Yeah. Why, what, what is yeah. that? And I remember somebody actually asking me what Easter was because they just had no framework and they weren't trying to be weird. It was genuinely, seriously, what, what is it though? And what does it mean? And alongside that, it would there is this spiritual hunger and this openness, which means you can take creative risks. And it means that you can't assume if you build it, people will come. Do you know what I mean? Yep. It forced yep. us outside our walls 
outside our habits. It made us not take, you know, like having a great band at church really meant nothing when you have Coldplay in the wider culture. Do you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Doesn't do anything. Having a great preacher is wonderful, but you got stand up for that. You know what I mean? That's right. That's right. The biggest like church that my friends go to in Edinburgh that's considered the mega church is 250 people. Yeah. And that is like, they're like, listen, we have to like have two services and it's, you know, but because most churches, these big, beautiful historical churches, like you said, are the pastors are doing the best they can. The worship team's doing the best they can. And 35 people are showing up. Totally. And so when you saw things, places that were bigger, you really did ask what God was up to. And also you really had no doubt it was God who was doing it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. When I was there, I was just there in October and had breakfast with my friends, Tim and Louise, and we're sitting there talking about their church and I'm going, okay, tell me more. Why is everyone going there? What's that? Because I know enough to know this is not just because culture is shifting as in American culture is influencing. This is God. Only God does this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and it's a positive reminder that it's really important that we are proactively, creatively exploring ways to um, communicate the gospel in ways that are accessible to people. And also, I tell you, the other thing that hit home is it really makes Christians get over their stuff with each other. Because right. that is a luxury. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a luxury yep. to argue about yep. junk. Yeah, that is a luxury in America to dis- to be unhappy about s- a small thing at your church that yeah. makes you just pick the next one down the street. Totally. You realize that even across your differences, you still probably have a lot more in common than you don't because you both call on the name of Jesus. <laughs> right. And you only know a handful of people that do that. Yeah. There are strong disagreements in different denominations and streams about how those things are done, but you'd find yourself still rating that they did it. Yeah. What do you miss most about living over there? Politics. Really? The politics? Yes. I miss the fact that I miss a three-party system. Okay. I miss it desperately. Really? Because Yeah, I, I do, because I think there was more room for nuance. And I think there was more room for either or or and. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than if you think this, you must believe this X, Y, Z, sure. here, that, and the other. Yeah, that's right. I found that the polarizing things can't help but be polarizing when you only have one other option. Mm-hmm. And how how Christians interact with politics, I think, is a fascinating thing. But again, I do that coming from a post-Christian culture and a world that's aware that it's a post-Christian culture. Because I think there are parts of the states which are very post-Christian, but I, don't, sure. I think we're still kind of, fighting for an old day sometimes rather than pursuing God in a new one. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I, I, your perspective is so unique to me because I don't know anyone else. I mean, there I have other Brits that are here that are my friends, but I don't know anyone else who's talking about this going like, man, I was a believer in a post-Christian world and politically active and cared. And now I'm a believer in a post-Christian country that doesn't realize they are. And thinks that they're still the 1950s, leave it to Beaver, everybody goes to church, good old boy country, and we're just not. That's not us anymore. No. And I mean, there'll always be pockets, won't there? And it's not a criticism. I mean, you praise God for the pockets, but the Great Commission is a great commission. And um, it requires more than, well, if we build it, they'll come. I think at the very minimum, it probably calls us all to be observers, to pay close attention to the world around us and the world around us, not necessarily the church around us, but the world around us and who those people are, what they look like, what their skin tone is, what, how that impacts the world they're in, what their marital status is, how that impacts the world they're in, so that we can articulate the gospel intelligently 
I didn't mean relevantly because I think the gospel, I assume the gospel is relevant because we're human beings. Yes, that's right. Um, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep. But, I, but I think observation is good. And I think some of the stuff with the UK is because we didn't observe, you know, people were saying it was a Christian country whilst the back door was open. Right, right. And um, all kinds of stuff was happening and um, perhaps didn't pay attention to certain things. What was your experience as a black woman married to a white man in the UK versus in the US? Are they different? Oh, um, yes. Yes, they are. It's varied from place to place, to be honest. Um, I, what I've noticed wherever we are is that I get the abuse. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, in England, when we got together, I remember we did have a rock through our window at one point. Um, oh my gosh. I do remember a man calling me a whore in the street. This is like unsolicited right, strangers. In the street, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying, you whore, you should be having black children. That was one. I do remember a guy saying, shouting across the street at us saying they need to bring back the men with pointy hats and we need that back and then I think and that was in England those were in England okay. here here it's been interesting I think I think what I found fascinating is in the in the church context mm. where it's been yeah where often people have found it more feasible that we're brother and sister by adoption rather than married sure so even though we'd have the same last name they'd be like how are you two connected again and I'm like well <laughs> either this is incest <laughs> And we're holding hands or we're a couple. Right, right, right. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, I'm not talking about people who are older. People our age asking those questions. It feels more coded here. And that may be because, I mean, they assume we're different culturally, but they're sure. um, Like my next door neighbor never called me by by my name when she talked. I mean, she talked about us extensively to neighbors and just referred to me as that black girl. (gasps) Oh, even though she knew my name. Like right now. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, yeah. yeah. That black girl and their family kind of thing was was the, <laughs> was oh the language gosh. of the day yeah um i mean we've had people shout at us in the street here um for sure attaching certain names um to it we've ha- our kids have encountered stuff for sure in school um particularly in the election cycle particularly oh, during sure. the election cycle yeah i think within the church i think it's fine until it isn't so i what i observed was when people disliked things that we did then I remember someone described me as having some evil coming across my face. And, oh my gosh. and then I know. And then another one was if someone else was being advised against us and it became, you know, the culture that they're from or the world that they're from or oh, their wow. and, and so things were far more coded in that respect. And and um as the church tends to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we're gonna do it, let's do it passive aggressively, people. That's right, that's so, right, that's right. <laughs> Don't say the real thing. Don't say the real thing. That's and, right. Um, or going to the other extreme of like saying, you know what, I don't even think of you as black. And I'm like, well, what do you think then, darling? Because yeah. I am. Yeah, that's and- right. <laughs> Which that honestly, that could be the way I would have aired or could air is trying to just decolor everyone and thinking that's the right way to do this. And it's not. Totally. And I think that I remember having a long um, chat with a seminary pro- professor about it because someone had challenged him about his racial the, the racial connotations of things he'd said. And he was really shocked. And so he asked me at length. And I said, the thing is, I, I remember sitting him, sitting him down and, and he was very receptive. God bless him. Wonderful man. And I said, when you, but this colorblind thing is not a thing, you know, God created me like this. So why do you not see what God created? Uh, <laughs> you know I mean? Right. And when you, when you minimize people's experiences or people's stories, even accidentally, and you're trying to hold the peace in some ways, 
But actually what you're doing is dehumanizing people's experiences and minimizing them and not listening because of the discomfort in the room. Well, that person's been living with discomfort for quite some time now. <laughs> right. That person's used to it. You're not telling them they're black and they didn't know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's been an interesting journey. And again, finding, and particularly with my husband back in the workplace, finding often that the corporate world has been further ahead on certain things mm-hmm. on it. And yeah. I, I tell you, I'll tell you the weirdest one though, has uh, the weirdest thing I found in this era, like when we're in Arizona, hearing people, Christians talk to us about Mexicans in really derogatory terms. And I thought, y- you do realize you're talking to someone of an ethnic minority when you're doing this, don't you? you right, you know, right. Am I meant to agree with you with all of these things? Because when you say that Mexicans are sexually promiscuous and lazy, because we used to get called that, did you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Thought, oh, wow. And I, I used to just kind of, st- I was stunned. And I thought, and as a believer, this is okay. It's been fascinating and it's been eye-opening. And I mean, Chris and I are aware that where, whenever we go in, there are certain contexts we go into that make people feel uncomfortable, um, for sure, or just unexpected or jarring. Um, I guess our primary thing in the moment, it, we've walked out of stores before because people have stopped. <laughs> there was one store we went to where me and Chris and the kid, literally they stopped, turned around and stared and just kept on staring. And we're like, you know what? We're not welcome here. We're, <laughs> we're not welcome here because this, this isn't normal. So um, we, we're more mindful of our kids in this moment now, but um, yeah, it, it's real. What would you like to see the church do? Like, like if you're a church leader, I'm a church leader. We have a lot of friends who listen who are pastors or who are men or women doing ministry some other way. What would you like to see the church do around this? Oh, I mean, there's a long list, but I, I would say there are, there are two theological things I, I'd want them to extrapolate, well, to dig deeper on. One is we're made in the image of God. That means... Every human being, we're made in the image of God. What does that mean then? If you look and say that black man, that Asian woman, that Latino family are made in the image of God, let that sink in. What, what assumptions yeah. have we had? Um, and I think there is a search me, O God, and know my heart. Do you know what I mean mm, on this? Mm-hmm. What does that mean yeah. for the indigenous communities across the country? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? I would ask them, who are you reading? Because is everybody like you? Does everybody look like you? sound like you? What, what are the assumptions? What have you grown up with? And it, and it causes us to do a lot of reflecting. Are you reading from people who are a different gender, different ethnicity, reading when your commentaries, things like that? I would encourage you to search because sometimes you just default to what's easy and that's understandable, but you don't want to stop yeah. there because you don't know what you're missing out on. Right. I mean, that's the thing, Joe, is that we aren't hurting the church. We're hurting ourselves. Yeah. We are missing out on a full expression of who God is when we don't listen to people of other races or genders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think the other thing in terms of in terms of active, you know, I think there's an internal response and there's an external response. I mean, there are lots of things in the Bible, but the one that um that the Bible speaks to on this, the one that comes to my mind at this moment is we talk about being salt and light. Um light illuminates things. What are you illuminating about race in your community? What are you illuminating about God's view of all these things? What And light guides, it stops people tripping up in the darkness. What, what are the pockets of darkness that you need to shine a light on in the hearts of your community? Salt is distinctive. It preserves, it protects, it flavors. What flavor do you bring on this sort of stuff? And, um, and sometimes salt stings. And I think in these times, salt and light is desperately needed. I think I would encourage them to ask themselves, what does it look like? And, uh, and when they don't know the answer, maybe ask the local pastor of color in your community, what does it look like for me to be sought and light in these issues? 
What can I learn from you? What do I need to hear? A big question a friend of mine asked me maybe a year and a half ago in the same building where I'm recording with you right now. My friend Michael Ware and I were sitting in a room within a meeting and he said, um, tell me who your black friends are that you're listening to. Mm. And it was you. I mean, it was like uh, Joe and Amina. And he was like, two. So you have two. And I was like, yeah, I need some more black friends, right? Like mm. I need some more people of other races too that are informing yeah. what I'm doing, you know? And and he was really challenging me on like, do you listen to people uh, that don't agree with you? Do you read books that aren't just mailed to you? Do you read, you know, like, are you only reading books by white women who are 28 to 50? Yeah. Or are you outside of that? And, you know, and it, it was a really good challenge for me because it is so easy to stay in the ruts that have been built for you, you know, Absolutely. not anyone doing anything wrong, but it's just really easy. I have always been a white girl. And so it's just really easy to stay in my stream and I will miss out on so much if I don't invite in male voices, younger voices, older voices, and voices of other colors and races, I will be the one missing out. Yeah, and I think that he raises a really good point because I think particularly as, as a church leader, I mean, and we're speaking specifically to church leaders and whether we're writers, if we're writers and we want, we want that, the words that we write to reach a country and go across a country, well, that country has multiple ethnicities, multiple. So are, do the stories and the examples you use um, include them. If you're a church leader and you're wanting to reach into multiple communities, what does that mean if some of those communities don't look like you? Is there the assumption that they will assimilate into your culture? And have you spiritualized your culture and made that Jesus? Ooh, okay. Okay, Joe. There are questions Go we there. have to ask of ourselves. And um, for those of us who, like you and I, who love to speak and teach and stuff, what does it look like? You know, we say we want to, we feel called to a nation. What color is that nation? Really? In practice, yeah. because if you are reaching a, a wider group of people, do you know the music people are listening to? Do you know the food that they eat? Do you know the, we say that the word of God is hugely important and we say that the mission of God is really important and yet we don't act like missionaries. Do you know what I mean? We don't act like servants. We, we Joe, assume. you are messing us up today. Sorry. Come on. Uh, do you know what I mean? No, I mean, I, sorry, no, I sorry. love it. You know I mean, we, we don't act like missionaries. We don't act like servants, we take a, a leadership view, which says, here I am, you come to me. And sure, I'm nice. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, nice. Right, right, right. I'm a nice person. So what's the problem kind of thing? Um, sing my songs, sing in my language. I remember my cousin was at my church years ago and someone had made, um, she was talking about cultural issues and we were talking about the different, I mean, as you know, London's a very diverse city and stuff. Sheffield, not so much. I mean, it's changed a lot in the past 10 years, but not so much. And there's a saying in England that people say, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And she was talking about how difficult certain things were for her culturally as a Nigerian Londoner and one of the only, you know, that there aren't many women of color in the church and one of them is her cousin. So <laughs> it's not like you've reached out. For yeah, her. right. And someone made this flippant response saying, well, you know, you've you got to do what it takes to fit in. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. And she said, I spend every day in Rome. She said, every day I'm doing what you do. I'm speaking the language. I'm wearing the clothes. I'm eating the food. Are we, and are we saying that the church can do nothing to reach to me? You've defined what's attractive. You know, I don't fit into the conventions of what you deem um, attractive. Um, my personality is too strong for you. And so that's not what a gentle woman of God looks like. All of these things. I breathe Rome. So don't tell me to do what the Romans do. I mean, <laughs> and, Ooh, and, um, Lord. and it's true. It was true. I mean, the person did repent. Sure, and sure, sure, sure. Their relationship was wonderfully reconciled, but it was, and they right. took it as a learning mo moment because you don't often realize 
these things are going on. If you're not in relationship with people or if you're not in close proximity, you don't realize your experience may only be experienced by people who are like you. The same often happens when we're talking about women in leadership or women stepping into things in particular ways. And I remember talking with a team of guys who I work with and they're like, why doesn't that woman just say this? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. <laughs> and they're like, but we're, we're welcoming and we're um, open and all these other sorts of things. And they just didn't realize that the woman's experience um, was different in their context than their, their own. Well, friends, I'm interrupting here for a very interesting reason. Joe and I were recording and going along fine. And then the power went out. And so we stopped and had to finish later. So this is the perfect time for me to interrupt Joe and tell you about our show sponsor this week. And it is Samaritan Ministries. At Samaritan Ministries, believers in Jesus are committed to sending financial gifts every month directly to an assigned member with a medical need. There's more involved than just money or mere physical healing when there is a need. And Samaritan members pray for one another for all aspects of members' needs and encourage one another by also sending notes and cards. Every month, more than 70,000 households give generously to other members with a qualified medical need through Samaritan Ministries International. That website is SamaritanMinistries.org. They are one of the leading healthcare sharing ministries in America. In fact, that is how I have Healthcare is I am a part of the Samaritan Ministries family. So members send checks, prayers, and notes of encouragement directly to other members in need. There are also opportunities to pay online as well, which makes my life a whole lot easier and probably yours too. Healthcare sharing is a unique opportunity for members to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The Samaritan Ministries direct sharing model is a biblical approach to paying for healthcare. Currently, Samaritan members give a monthly share starting at $100, depending on your age and your household size. And Samaritan Ministries members have never shared more than $495 a month for a family of any size. And just as significantly, Samaritan members also pray for one another and include notes and cards of encouragement with their monthly shares, which they send directly to families. You can learn more at SamaritanMinistries.org. Thousands of Christians are joining the movement that allows them to care for one another for their health care, sharing their needs from broken bones to cancer, pregnancies to organ transplant. Nearly a quarter of a million Christians have chosen a health care option that adheres to their biblical beliefs and brings together believers in community. So I would highly suggest you checking out SamaritanMinistries.org. Okay, now back to the second half of the show where Joe and I recorded later and picked up. I feel like I don't totally remember our last sentence. Do you remember our last sentence? I do not because I'm not sure which bit was the uh, last. Same. At one point I was singing Celine Dion. Right. And that thinking, was the best maybe part. Maybe you can hear me. <laughs> or maybe you can't. So <laughs> let's, I do know what we were, the because I did write down what the session we were talking about, like kind of the big idea was our identity and what it looks like to do our identity really well. And, and literally that is what your book, The Dream of You is about, is about your identity. Yeah, I, I met lots of people along the way who seemed to want to run into the things that God had for them. And those are people who weren't people of faith who were like wrestling with purpose. And as they wrestled and talked through all their struggles, it kept on coming down to actually the, it was their identity that felt stuck. And because their identity was stuck, they weren't able to do what they were passionate about or even begin to dream again. Why does that matter so much to you personally? Like all of us kind of get the books from God, I think, that that connect most closely to who we are. That's the only thing you know how to write. That's the only thing I know how to write. You know how to write a lot more than that, but that's the only thing I know how to write. Why is that for you? I think because that would probably be the, the battle 
the journey, the fight, as it were, of my walk with God and just life in general, that as I discovered what it was, what it was to be in Christ, the platitudes weren't enough for me. Do you know what I mean? And nothing that's a platitude ever intends to begin as one. It just becomes one when we're not quite sure how it got there. I would hear people quoting about being in Christ and it's like, that's great. And I love the fact that you're saying that passionately. I still don't know what that means. Yeah, or, right. I know. Doesn't that make you crazy? Do you know what I mean? I don't know what that means yes. in this situation, that situation. And so I need to dig deeper because, and again, to go back to the fact, what we were talking about earlier about um, being in a post-Christian context, either this stuff is real or I'm in the wrong religion. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Either he is transformative and there's a difference between being transformed and talking transformed. And I didn't want to talk transformed because everybody knows that's a lie, including me. I wanted to live transformed. I mean, for me, my junk was obvious. My brokenness was obvious. I grew up in foster care, um, or at least the first six years of my life. My parents were... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. um, And it was a wonderful experience, I've got to be honest with you. But it does leave you questions about where you belong and who you belong to. Sure, sure. (laughs) There's no doubt about that. And I think with those questions and with... I grew up in the inner city. I grew up in the midst of racial tensions and all those kinds of things. There were lots of things that were impacting how I saw myself or um, whether I agreed with those stipulations of the culture around me or not. It didn't stop me being impacted by them. And so if Jesus is a rescuer and transforms, and if you're a new creation, I wanted to know what that would look like because the old creation, and um, to, coin, to use the phrase and, um, from Corinthians, and to the old me or the me that the world said I was, particularly in the midst of racial tensions, was worthless or too black or too dark or not or ignorant or backwards because I'm African or lazy because I'm poor or all these sorts of things. And um, I wasn't trying to escape my environment in on one level. I mean, there are certain things I definitely was intending to escape because I don't know anybody should have to live um, that way. But <laughs> I wasn't trying to shed my personhood. I wanted to hear God's value of my personhood. I didn't need, just because someone said that Africans were ignorant didn't mean I believed them. I just wanted to hear God's opinion more. Just because someone Come said on. I was too black didn't mean I believed them. I just thought- But you heard it. That's I, I so wanna, good. Yeah, I heard it. And it's in the atmosphere. You don't have to agree with it for it to hurt you. Okay. Yep. You know what I mean? You don't yep. have to take it on for it to singe your soul in some kind of a way. And I think that's what, for me, was has been the wrestle. And, you know, as living in different countries and different contexts you have to, and different seasons of life, you ask yourself who you are again. And so in my 20s, it was as I d- stepped into leadership, what did that mean for my identity? And I, and I realized that we are not wrestling, but processing this question of who we are and what we're here for in every chapter of our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And if you don't, what happens for the people who won't do that wrestle? Well, then we won't always be aware of the fact that we are wrestling one way or another. If we're not wrestling, we might be reacting <laughs> uh-huh. to the events or the relationships. Like whether you're still defined by the things that someone said to you or still defined by the way you responded to, to a particular crisis, whether you're not giving yourself space or grace because you're actually grieving and that is shaping your identity and you need to hold space for that and, and actually lament. Um, and also we don't live or love, or lead, I like my alliteration, beyond what we believe about ourselves. Do you know what I mean? So if you believe you're worthless, and if you believe you're stupid, how does that impact how you relate to the opposite sex? How does that impact the kind of people you'll say yes to, and what your yeses and your nos will be? How will that shape how you parent? Um, How will that shape your approach to your gifts and abilities in the workplace? Will you speak up? 
How will it affect your voice? Or are you living on mute? All of those things. And it actually comes down to the process of, of your identity and the broke, not just what's happened to you, but also how you've responded. Sometimes it's not the events themselves. It's the habits we've cultivated yep. to handle what's happened or yeah. the relationships we're in or the dysfunction we, we found ourselves surrounded by. So who is the book for? When I wrote it, I centered it on women. Um, I don't know that I, I wrote it in response to the conversation. So I centered it on women, but I actually talked to a lot of guys who were reading it and they said, is it for women? And I said, no, it's centered uh, on women's stories. But just because it's a woman's story doesn't mean you can't read it and it's not for you. Uh, do you yeah, know I mean? that's I exactly right. All the time and it changes my life. I read stories of people of de- different ethnicities all the time and it changes my life. So I have no, no doubt that, um, <laughs> that it can speak to everybody. But they are, it is centered on, on women's stories because it's not just what I'm most familiar with. It's just the stories in terms of voice and culture and body are particularly loud. And I mean, obviously, I didn't know the cultural moment we'd be in um, around women's stories, particularly sure. at this moment when I wrote the book. But I would say it's for everybody, but I'd be lying if I was saying I didn't center the story in a particular way and I centered it on women's stories. And tell me how, I mean, I, you and I have talked about this in person, but because you preach to men and to women. Oh, yeah. But you definitely have a tender spot in your heart toward women. Why is that? Besides being yeah. one. And it developed over, over time because, again, as you know, in the UK, there aren't kind of women's conferences as such, or at least, or at least they're, they're very recent. Uh, women's ministries are quite recent phenomenons. Um, so as I, as I grew up in leadership, I was always leading guys in my teams, in my, I was always, always leading guys. And, and that's part of my theological framework as well. I, I was always communicating, training, and all of that um, with guys. But I remember um, getting to a point as I, maybe as I turned 30, when I'd have a lot of people, a lot of women asking me saying, how did you get there? How did you do this? Um, how did you cope in this environment? What do you do? Or wrestling. Just, I remember one one woman saying to me, she goes, I know this guy and I've been dating him for ages and I love him and he's great. Um, but he's more introverted and behind the scenes where I'm more upfront. Could, should I marry him? And I'm like, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, he loves the Lord. He's got a job. He's really committed to what I do. He He's serving. He's passionate. And I'm like, marry him. And you yeah, can feel serious. the other girls in the room saying, look, if you don't marry him, you want to give me his number right now because I will. Yeah, serious. <laughs> but it all kind of gave rise to the fact that there were multiple women in multiple phases of life who were wrestling with their call and they didn't know how to be what they couldn't see even to have um, examples to differentiate themselves from. And so they were second guessing their own callings. And that was the thing where I began to stir. And I, and I, first of all, I would talk, you know, when you first be stirred about something, you start telling everybody else that they should do it. And I'd be like, you need to do something about the women here. You need to do something. You need to invest mm-hmm. in your womanly. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And I'd be yep. nagging and harassing people. I know. I feel like I have to beat that drum all the or I don't have to. I feel like I beat that drum all the time. I'm always like, oh, sorry. I'm going to tell you again that there should be again. a woman up there somewhere. And I think it's a valid thing because a lot of the spaces I go into, I'm the first woman who's sp- spoken there or the and, and more often the first person of color there. So you do want to represent and encourage people. But I felt my pointing finger come my direction at one point and say, okay, if there are these stories and if there are these challenges that women face and you've encountered them and you've found some ways through, what would it look like to give a chapter of your time and your call to leadership on centering women in that? And um, like still, I still talk to women and men and, and in my speaking engagements, you'll see both. But what would it look like to give some time, space and energy to actually investing in women who lead and encouraging women who lead? What do you hope happens when people read it? 
Um, my hope is that it does confront the things that have held them back, that it illuminates that, but it also helps them realize that it's okay and that they can yes. go on a journey to reclaiming their God-given oh, identity. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, you and I have talked about this in real life, but so much of my story is not believing what God said about me, believing what everyone else said about me and what I said about myself. I probably was my own worst enemy more than not. And believing what I said about myself, believing what I heard in my head and everything changes. Yeah. When you change the person that you're listening to, <laughs> you seriously, yeah, it just, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times I think we think of teenage girls and we say, if you have a low self-esteem, that means you're going to sleep around or that means you're going to make all these bad choices with boys because you're trying to earn their love and affection. It can also look like removing yourself from any opportunity to lead or to be loved or to be seen because you've decided no one should see you. They didn't. Absolutely. And oh my gosh, I mean, it's the, whether you're going to put your name in your name in the ring for that promotion. It's the, whether you're going to confront something in your family. It's the, um, way we eat, sleep, drink, all of the, I mean, it's, it can manifest itself in multiple ways. In some ways, the teenage thing about whether you'll sleep around is almost the easy one. That may be the obvious one, but, um, there are plenty. Right. Cause the hard one, let's just go there. The hard one is the girls, and we're just going to talk about girls, even though I believe this is dudes too. The girls who live pure lives and get to wear that stamp of purity, oh but they are drowning as much as the girls who are sleeping. Around. Seriously. It's just not yeah. visible. So they get to look pious and they get to look pure, but they are actually scared. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Terrified, terrified of relationships, terrified of still asking whether they're enough or too much, um, eating um, disorderly in private, cutting. Yeah, private. yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, suffering, suffering actually in private and feeling the pressure of having to perform a spirituality that they don't actually feel or think. Right. You know, and that they're doing it because this is what the church told them to do. Oh, we're just, I, I mean, yeah. this is my, I, I have so many feelings about this, Joe, because I think we are setting these young women up high school, college, maybe even middle school of like, here's what purity looks like. And if you do this, the insides don't matter. Just show us the outside that you're not doing this and you are doing this, right? Just show us on the outside that you're going to youth group. Present it. Yeah. Present it well. And you and I both know now that as we're ministering and leading and serving and coaching and developing women who are in their 30s, we know what that looks like 20 years down the line. And it looks like a hot mess. Yep. We know. Yep, exactly. Not, uh, you know, we've, we've come alongside women who are like, I kept myself pure and I hate sex. I hate sex because right. I still have right. a feeling like the 15 year old who was told it was terrible. It was terrible. And I don't love my body and I don't enjoy it. And I'm like, why is this? Because I've I couldn't change the switch. I couldn't flip the switch for this to now be a wonderful God-given gift because yep. this was the thing that made me terrible for, ter- for many, many years. Or manifest in, in thinking, you know, my body has changed because I do not have the metabolism of my 20s. I have the metabolism of my 40s and I'm different now. But the way I presented when I was younger was what made me valuable and worthy and acknowledgeable in in culture site, but also in the church's site. And now who I Right. You know? Right. Because it's almost like it, if she will present herself as pure, no one even knows, unless you're intentionally doing it, no one even knows to push past that and ask what is going on in her mind. Totally. No one asked about mental health. Yep. Yep. And so identity, for me, when I think about identity and I... um and I teach on it and I'm in front of women of all ages, really, because like you said, the women our age are still 
are still rolling around in this trouble too. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. Like they are still, yeah, it, it, we are not all free. But when I talk to younger women, I always push in on the secret sins. Yeah. Because I'm like, listen, if you're sitting in church on a Saturday, because you and I just spoke together two weekends ago mm. at a conference. And, and if, you're, if you're a teenage girl sitting in the stream on a Saturday, you know the right things to do. And you may totally be here for the right reasons. But yeah. has anybody asked you what you eat in private? Yes. Or has anybody asked you if you're looking at pornography? Absolutely. Or has anybody asked you if you're cutting yourself? Like, and maybe they are. Again, this isn't me judging leaders or students or anything. I'm just saying that it is really easy to sneak through the system yeah. of the church as a student when you when you do the right things quote yeah quote. oh my gosh it is and and the sad thing about that is not just the impact it has on your life but what that you have to go through these challenges and these fears and these worries alone do you know what I mean that's the, that's the tragedy that's the tragedy that yep, you are hurting right. yourself because of some pain that you've been unable to articulate or process or get to a counselor to and there's no nobody there to hold your hand and take you to that counselor's office so that you can process that stuff properly that's the biggest tragedy not that you're keeping secrets but these these secrets are destroying you yeah and you're feeling, for the sake of somebody else, feeling like they're leading a good youth group or that you're a good Christian family, that you can't show that. Yeah. You know I mean, that you're having exactly to be right. the glue for everybody else and you're having to keep it together on everybody else's behalf. And that's, that is sad. That is sad. And that is soul destroying. And, um, and also it has lingering consequences for people. Yeah. It so makes me grateful that your book exists so that we can like have a place to send women of all ages, but young, old, and, and say like, okay, now just go process the yeah. dream of you. Like, go actually answer these questions that Joe poses, because all throughout you pose these questions that kind of like stepped on my toes. <laughs> and you didn't mean to. I mean, you meant to. Yes, I did. But you're sneaky. You you didn't say, think about these eight questions. You just told your story and then went, what does that make you feel? And I went, get out of my business, Joe Saxon. <laughs> right? Like, but that's the, I love that you push us to make the choices we want to make from a pure place of identity, not from a, this is who I'm supposed to be place of identity. Yeah. And I think we have to keep on tearing that down because I, I, when I ask people the question, who were you before anybody told you who you were so supposed to be? It may ask that one more time. Ask that one more time. It basically, who were you before anybody told you who you were supposed to be? I just think it's a question that gives us all, men and women pause it gives us pause and it's meant to give us pause because there are so many layers now and we get so tired that it feels like it's too late you know it's too late now I'm too old I'm it's been too long but now you look in the popular culture where people are articulating me too or time's up because their story meant tells us that life interrupted them in horrendous abusive ways it's not too old it's not too long it's now now's the time Now's the time to, to articulate the terrible things that have happened or the that's just life, but it happened or the fun things that have happened, but went askew that have shaped up our well-being and our identity. Yeah, there's never a time that you have passed the point where you can reshape your identity to, to affect your future. Also, because we don't live in isolation, it's not just our future either. You know, it's, a, uh, it's, the, it's the things that are important to us. I know that my story when I come into a room, I bring my story. I bring my life. Now, sometimes that room is X amount of women at an event or a bunch of leaders. Sometimes it's one child, one of my children. Sometimes it's my husband. Sometimes it's a friend. All of those things, all of those things in my story, I don't say this to make myself feel guilty. I'm just aware 
that that's my reality, that when I held my baby in her arms, I could not help but think of me as a baby being given to a foster mother. I can't help but think of those things. It was a collision of my past, my present, and my future. I need God to be holding me in that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I needed right. the Lord to hold me in that place. Not apportioning blame to who did what, because that's that's long gone. And 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 those those things have been worked through. But I still had to address the fact that I was holding this three-day-old child, and that's the that's the stage I was when I was mm, handed over. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I had to reckon with that. That does a reckoning with, yep. with my soul. Yeah, and it should, I think, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it should do a reckoning with you that I was talking to some friends last night. I had dinner with some friends, and we were talking about how this situation that has just happened in their family is stirring up in the mom. This is what I experienced when I was a kid, and I didn't even realize, right? Yeah. yeah. And she's like, but all of a sudden, I got so angry at, present day realizing that actually this anger is not present day yeah Mm -hmm. this is old anger right yeah and it's that same thing of like that is god healing you that is not you being insane that is god healing you because he's letting your brain remember in that moment oh there's something here that still hurts and i need to look at it right and it's a huge important thing isn't it because i don't think we're very good at allowing women to be angry I don't think we're very good at allowing oh, anger yes. and we forget and we, we attribute anger to dominance or aggression or whatever and forget that anger is a secondary emotion to do with fear or pain that begins with those. I'm not saying that aggression and dominance don't happen and I'm not saying they're healthy, but rather than saying, why are you angry or why should you be angry or you're not supposed to be angry and add all your cultural oughts and shoulds on, on you, that it might be worth us thinking of things like, what are you afraid of? that causes you to respond in anger? What, what hurt you so badly that caused you to respond in anger? Because maybe then, what are you grieving that's producing this response? And then maybe we'll actually get somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll actually yeah. get somewhere and not shame people into presenting this kind of non-angry response that they actually really do have. Yes, I, I, I taught a couple of weeks ago at Buckhead Church. And one of the things I said is pain and poison will always get out. Seriously. You get to decide how it leads. You know, like it can either leave through healing or it can explode out of you. Yeah. And you decide. You decide. You either face it and walk with it or let it just, yeah, explode. And I have done both, right? I have let my pains and my history identify me and be my identity and exploded on things yeah. and people. Totally. And I don't want to be here anymore. I no. don't want to be here anymore. Because then that carries on. It leaves the legacy. That's not the legacy any of us intend to leave, to leave the legacy of when we exploded on someone else, they in turn will then have to process um, yeah, right? their story, that chapter of their story. There's always shrapnel. Yeah. Yeah. We want to act like we can behave in a way that doesn't cause shrapnel in other people's lives. And that's just not how it is. No, no. We are wired for community. And whether we, whether we want to be part of it or not, it's too late. We, we already are. So. Man, Joe, I I know you know this because we're real life friends, but I am just so thankful to serve God alongside you. Oh, thank you. I feel you. really honored to get to do this job with you and do this life with you. So, thank you. Um, okay, so I got to ask you one more question before we hang up because yeah. it's our very very favorite last question that we always ask on the show is what sounds fun to you right now? What is fun? We always because the show's called That Sounds Fun. So, what sounds fun to you right now? Oh, I think. Um, there's some fun things with the kids right now. I'm, I'm a big fan oh, of yeah? carpool. I'm a okay. big fan of carpool, which is ridiculous. Why do you love carpool? I think because they're all in that kind of tween middle school stage and they're all oh, getting ideas and they're all doing these games. So that is one of my favorite things. 
I love, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I wasn't usually a board game person. Just yeah, me neither. I'm probably a little too competitive for my own good, but, <laughs> but we have found these. What's your Enneagram number, Joe? It's an eight. It's an eight, Annie. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. But you wing seven. Yes, I wing seven. So I think, yeah, when, yeah, I yeah. think that having all these um, emerging teens around have got that wing flapping yeah. a lot more. Do you know what I mean? And that's so right. That is, that's right. It's hilarious having them over, hanging out with them, um, watching them devour my food like locusts. All of, right. all of those things. And they're girls. That's the best part. When I led a small group in Nashville, I was like, y'all, and they would eat at my house on Thursday, Tuesday nights. I'd be like, y'all, I, I could cook the same for a group of boys and they would eat just as much. You eat as much as the oh dudes. Oh my gosh, they do. Particularly it's so when impressive. Come from like a practice or something, they just kind of scarf oh, it down. It's, it's ridiculous. Incredible. Yep. But yeah, yep. it's fun. It is a lot of fun. Oh, I love it. And, and you're, I mean, it's like we, we talked about it. If you are doing discipleship, by just being in the car with them when you do carpool, you know, like you are living discipleship. Well, I'll tell you the other thing, Instagram, they follow on Instagram. And I'm like, you best, you best behave yourself on Instagram, mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> because they, I know that's right. They are following. So they are a good accountability as well in terms of just how you engage in the world around you. Yep. Everybody can see what you like and they don't just see what you say. They see what you like. Ain't that the truth. So I don't quit thinking about that. <laughs> okay, Joe, thanks for being on the show. I'm so, so grateful for you. Thank you. Oh, friends, isn't she just the best? I mean, what a gift. Really, what a gift to know Joe Saxton and to get to listen to her wisdom and talk to her. And I am just um, so, so grateful. Hey, make sure you grab her book, The Dream of You. If you're thinking about Easter baskets for your teen daughter or you want to mail something to your daughter at college or you are a woman <laughs> or if you know a woman, get a copy of her book, The Dream of You. It's beautiful. The cover's blue. It's I just absolutely love it. The inside is as good as the cover. You can judge the book by the cover and then the inside's going to be even better. So I um, am just so grateful for her and I love her. Make sure you follow her on social media so you can keep up with what she's saying. She is a wise woman as you have already heard and I love that listening to her brings my brain around different cultures and things I don't know just from being a white girl in America so I'm really thankful for her hey, if you have any questions or if there's anything I can do for you I'm embarrassingly easy to find it's Annie F Downs all over the place what could F stand for today um fancy it's fancy feels right today so Annie F Downs Instagram Facebook Twitter anywhere you need me that is how you can find me my website's AnnieFDowns.com and if you get a chance to rate and review the show, that would mean the world. Just take time to do that. It just helps because then when people are sliding by, they have listened to one episode and they want to see what other people are saying. They have your nice little words down there with your five stars. Five stars, please. And if you want to subscribe so you don't miss any of the upcoming shows, that would be awesome. Next week, we have coming on the show. Oh, I'm so pumped about this. Worship leader, Corey Asbury. I am a huge fan of his. Wasn't already friends with him. Forced him to be my friend. And now you're going to hear a really interesting conversation. Corey Asbury, if you are in an evangelical church right now, you are probably singing his song, Reckless Love. Everybody's singing it. And I loved it. And so I just stalked him until I found him. Nah, not literally stalked him. I just sent some emails and was able to get him to hop on the show with us and talk about that song, leading worship, writing songs, Jesus, God, all the stuff. So I think you're going to love it. So that is next week. So make sure you're subscribed so you do not miss it and make sure you grab Joe's book today. I hope you go out there and do something that sounds really fun to you. And I will see you guys next week.